and welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and Adam, my co-host, is here as well. Uh, and this week, we'll be having a conversation about COVID-19's impact on the rapid adoption of contactless payments. Uh, really looking at how COVID-19 has accelerated this trend uh, in consumer payment behavior uh, and how it will likely further disintermediate consumers from traditional banks and financial service providers. Uh, so we're going to really see a a very new and dynamic uh, payment landscape. But before we dive into that conversation, uh, let's get into the news. Uh, so Adam, are you ready, as always, to dive into the news of the week? Of course. All right, let's do it. Uh, well, first up, we have some news from Instagram. Uh, Instagram is built-in shopping cart is now coming to IGTV and Reels. Uh, and shopping in IGTV is rolling out around the world while Reels will be testing it later this year. Uh, Adam, I think a look at this as kind of a competitor to TikTok and potentially their deal with Walmart uh, as they're going to further integrate, I would assume, shopping into TikTok as a whole, really focusing on social as an emerging channel for commerce. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you know, TikTok has um, some shoppable content already. So this is really Instagram catching up to that. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, the Walmart component of that deal was really, uh, you know, I think emphasizing that they were going to make a big push in the US because Walmart obviously is stronger in the US, a little weaker uh, globally. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that this is Instagram catching up to that i you know i have some questions i think igtv and reels are not uh they're part. certainly not making <laughs> making the waves uh that tiktok uh is right um but you know i think this is this is the last sort of component that they need to help creators monetize on their platform because obviously create this is is part of the creator uh ecosystem mm -hmm. uh, and i think that that that's a good thing right so like uh, we the creators on instagram will have the same opportunities that they will on tiktok and i think that's sort of the important point here. And then we'll have to just see as it rolls out, is this increasing penetration of IGTV and Reels? I solely look at IGTV as long form like Instagram content. Like there's really no yeah. difference. It's just yeah. like, here's how you can, it's like you made a 30 second clip, may as well put the whole video on there as well and put it under IGTV, which is like... I don't know. It seems kind of like a product hack. It doesn't really seem like its own separate thing, but well, I would I think Reels kind of is a product hack also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think the 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 one the one danger here for Instagram is just that Instagram is becoming a little bit like a Frankenstein's monster of yeah. uh, various yep. products, and I think that you know shoving more into Instagram is starting to become dangerous. Uh, the, again, this has to kind of be there at some point for the creators on the platform. But I don't know, that product is getting really top heavy at, <laughs> at this point. Yeah, well, you know, uh, got to compete some way. Uh, and if this is the way to go about it, I don't know, we'll see. But uh, as always, you know, we know Facebook is continues to iterate and develop new products uh, in order to stay competitive, uh, because they need to retain that, that, that share of attention, uh, especially with TikTok, because that is probably their biggest competitor. And as of right now, it's not going anywhere. Next up, um, Amazon has made a deal to stream Thursday Night Football once again. Um, but I think the interesting thing about this is they're adding a bunch of new features to it. And they're the kind of features that only really make sense on a 
you know, on a streaming platform. Um, so one of them is uh, X-Ray. X-Ray is Amazon's very cool feature um, that uh, lets you sort of dig deeper into the content. Um, and it works uh, on diff- on all of their different platforms. They have this on Kindle. Um, they already have it on Fire TV for movies and TV shows. This is what will, um, you can hit a button on your Fire TV remote and it'll pull up uh, information from IMDB, which is another Amazon-owned property, of course, um, on the actors and, and directors and, and, and crew of the of the movie, but it also does cool things like it'll show you, um, you know, which other scenes that character has appeared in and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So they're bringing X-Ray to Thursday Night Football um, to, to, to give access to the NFL's next-gen stats, cool. um, which is a, this really cool um, connected platform that the NFL has been developing um, that gives you insights into uh, the players and including real-time data on how they're performing in that specific game. So uh, lots of awesome data that you can pull up. Um, I'm sure this is going to be sort of a boon to the, the geekiest NFL fans <laughs> to be able to watch this way. <laughs> or or, um, the, or those that bet, those that want to bet in sports betting, that, this would be huge, huge. All these all new prop bets are now in play based off of throw <laughs> speed, yards ran, speed per set, speed per foot. Who knows? Um, but this is really interesting, and I think too, not only Amazon, but there have been a few startups that have, that have been trying to implement this technology to kind of just enhance the overall uh, football watching experience, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, and I mean, do you think potentially this is because? They need a younger audience. Like, like they're looking for ways into, you know, bring the the, the median age down in the sport to like a younger generation by adding these features. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily targeting a, a younger generation. I see mm-hmm. it more as Amazon saying to. Uh, the, the NFL, but also other sports leagues, look, we can do so much more for you than traditional broadcast networks because of right. look at all this cool stuff we can do. Because they're not only adding x-ray, which I think is the coolest feature. They're also adding, um, an audio only feed. So, uh, if, if you want to listen to it rather than watch it, um, let's say you're, you know, driving or something where you can't mm-hmm. watch the game, you can still tune in and listen to it, which is very cool. Um, and they're also adding a couple of, uh, sh- of NFL specific shows on Twitch. Um, the oh, NFL cool. comment box on monday at 11 a.m uh, pacific time and the nfl machine on wednesdays at 3 p.m pacific time so they're starting to program around the 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 actual games i think that will extend the audience into younger viewers who mm-hmm. as we know tend to not sit down and watch an entire football game they'll watch highlights and engage in other content around right. the game um so i think that you know there's there's it, it, i think it's a really nice uh, display of like what being in the Amazon ecosystem can do for you as a sports league. Um, and I think that I see this more as, um, you know, some obvious product developments, but also Amazon, you know, trying to show the other leagues the benefit of working with right. a, a streaming player as opposed to a broadcast, a broadcast player. player. Totally. And it's interesting too, knowing that Amazon's getting back into podcasts, um, the scout feed, uh, could very well be very exclusive to the Amazon Music, Amazon Podcast ecosystem listening experience. You know, so there's one more benefit uh, or product offering to get people to listen within their application or their products. Yeah, I, I don't think we know exactly where that feed is going to live. If it's going to live, Amazon does did just launch podcasts inside of their music product. They also mm-hmm. have podcast-like content inside of Audible. I don't think we entirely know where this content's going to live yet. As is typical for Amazon, why <laughs> do one version of a product when you can do five? Uh, but, <laughs> and you can A-B um, test we'll, and figure it exactly. out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'll see. We'll see how uh, when it rolls out, we'll see how that looks. 
Okay. Well, next up, Adam, we have some piece of news that you're super excited to talk about, but I will I will just intro it for you. Uh, so it seems like GMC's new all-electric Hummer will be the first car with software that is built using Epic's Unreal Engine. So does that mean I can play Fortnite in this car, or how does how does this <laughs> uh, work? Not yet, uh, but maybe eventually. Uh, no, I think this is just a very cool extension of what um, Epic has been doing in their with the Unreal Engine outside of gaming. They've been mm-hmm. really focused on growing it for um, architectural use specifically, yep. um, but also automotive. So a lo- one thing that a, that a lot of folks probably don't know is a lot of the the CGI renderings of cars that you see before you're actually seeing you know the built models, a lot of those are developed in Unreal Engine already. And they use Unreal as part of the production process um, in designing these vehicles. Um, and Epic's basically taking the next step here and saying, okay, we're going to obviously be part of that process. Uh, still for for the upcoming all electric Hummer, but we're also going to now power the in dash system. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the head unit for for the Hummer is going to be running Unreal, which means that you will actually be using that super high res official model of the vehicle when you're like when it's pointing out things on the vehicle to you in the dashboard. It mm-hmm. also means cool. the dashboard unit is going to have obviously higher performance graphics. They made a, a very big deal about the fact that it allows the designers to work more in real time and to be able to ship updates faster. I guess uh, it's pretty typical in auto manufacturing for the designers to design a few key screens of that experience and then just hand it off to the engineers who implement it however they want, which is not not how most software design uh, (laughs) works usually. (laughs) Yeah. Usually the designers get a little bit more input and get to like review, you know, exactly how it's implemented before it, it actually ships. So they're, they're, basically emphasizing that the, de- the designers will have more control over the experience and that will make it into a better experience. Um, so I just, I think this is just very cool. It also is points the way towards future integrations where, uh, you know, they do talk about how Unreal can be used for, and it, as part of uh, the self-driving stack of software yep. uh, when, when we do get there. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, eventually as part of a media ecosystem, they, part of the reason for, for Epic to be in, the cabin of the uh, of the vehicle is so that eventually, when we do get to self driving, parts of the Unreal Engine might be powering that self driving process, but other parts of it might be powering an entertainment experience. Mm-hmm. And we know all of our major tech companies are interested in self driving cars, partially because uh, they want to control the media ecosystem inside those vehicles. So Epic is putting a stake in the ground there as well, uh, and I just think it's uh, very exciting as we see them branch out into more non-gaming products uh it does uh you know beg the question as to when epic is going to drop games from their name just like apple one long ago dropped computers from their names right (laughs) that's a good point good insight there um well i i think the big takeaway here adam is that uh fortnite coming soon to a hummer near you You know, I would also not be surprised if when the Hummer actually does launch, if we see uh, that all-electric Hummer show up as a an mm-hmm. item in, in as a vehicle in Fortnite. Oh, I would not for be sure. surprised. Oh, that'd be that would be so cool. Uh, and heck, who knows if it's anything like the, like the new Byton all-electric vehicle? They're going to have a 42-inch plasma, you know, 4K, 8K TV in there anyway. So, like, you may as well just be able to play some sort of game on there um, in your downtime or your spare time or whenever it might be. To dive into our last story uh, in this section, uh, Venmo has unveiled a digital credit card to leverage smartphone use. Uh, So a Visa credit card is issued by Synchrony Financial and will be managed through Venmo's smartphone app, but accompanied by a physical printed card with a QR code. Um, 
makes a lot of sense. It seems like a lot of these companies that started out as like peer-to-peer payments, uh, you know, as a as a you know as a bank, are all looking for ways in which they can put a physical card or a digital card into somebody's hand uh, to further entrench them and root them into their financial services and kind of grow out of just standard p2p payments but really become a full financial solution and offering whether that's loans whether that's like that's banking solutions whether that's e-commerce point of sales and kind of processing like those transactions uh there's a lot of room for venmo to play just outside of that peer-to-peer payment uh environment yeah venmo already had a debit card that was linked to your account so this is adding lending on top of that with a mm-hmm. with a credit card product um and yeah to your point at, at basically everybody in the emerging fintech space um as soon as you can you know engage consumers at one level they try they're trying to integrate additional products mm-hmm. and features and some percentage of consumers will convert to those additional products uh, basically you know by default by by the placement of those uh those features inside of the apps that they're using every day so uh, i think this makes sense i think it'll be um interesting to see uh you know if they at some point unveil person to person lending as well mm-hmm. or if they you know do, really do use the the their core product as some sort of differentiator um for uh for for having this this credit card as opposed to something else but um you know as of right now i think it you know it's a, again it's just another uh a step down the value chain for for venmo to start integrating new products and services absolutely and what i really like about this is their reward program i think it's very unique and it's very customer forward in the sense that you get three percent cash back for a person's top spending category no matter what it is uh for the billing cycle and then you get two percent for the next highest and one percent on all purchases so essentially you don't have to like play the game of oh i have to use this card on groceries and this card on travel it's whatever is you're spending the most on that billing cycle you'll get the three percent cash back on so like you're always getting the best um percent cash back for the highest spending category you have which i think is really interesting and very unique uh value prop yep three percent is not um necessarily the best deal that you're going to get um mm-hmm. from credit cards if you if you're willing to optimize you can you can do better than that um, yeah but i think it, this is it's the same kind of value proposition we saw from apple when they launched uh, apple card which is right. some some pretty transparent uh ideas on how how you're getting that cash back well adam that is going to wrap up this week's news section and now i want to transition the conversation into our discussion on the rapid adoption of contactless payments So before we start, can you just define for us uh, what we mean when we say contactless payments? Yeah, I think we're really talking about uh, three separate categories here. Um, I think the the first one is contactless digital payments, which um, I think are what most of our listeners in the U.S. are going to think of, and that is Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay for the like two <laughs> Samsung Pay fans all the way in the back. Um, but using your phone or your watch or digital devices with a digital credit card mm-hmm. um, to pay for, uh, to make payments at uh, whether that's a point of sale or whether that's um, online uh, through through the browser mm-hmm. um, or through through apps. Um, the second category is, uh, you know, what what sort of, came before that, which is contactless payment using actual cards. Um, and uh, this is something that a lot of cards 
uh, in the U.S. now support, although a lot of folks don't actually use them because uh, a lot of cards in the U.S. didn't support this until after Apple Pay and Google Pay were sort of in the mix. So it's sort of like, uh, why don't I just use my phone? Um, but it is very, very popular in Europe because they they had uh, this technology rolled out and established well before uh, mobile devices gained that ability. So they're sort of more focused on that and there's a little less there's less motivation for them to adopt the the, the device based mm-hmm. uh, payments and then the third one is uh, what has what is super well established in China um, which is QR codes and this right. is using your your phone to scan a QR code uh, to check out um, using uh, using a platform like Alipay that also is older um, and came before our devices were able to, to do um, NFC based payments and because again because it's established and because it's good enough uh, for most consumers, there's a little less motivation for them to move to the uh, device-based uh, wallets and payments. Fantastic. And that, that was a great breakdown of those three different categories. To put some stats behind this, pre-pandemic, um, mobile proximity payments in the US among smartphone users last year was only at 29% adoption. And if we compare that to, like you said, to the, um, a, a country like China, uh, they have adoption of 81%. Uh, so in general, before the pandemic, this was very, very small. Like It was still growing, but it wasn't hitting the exponential rate of growth that we think a lot of these fintechs and other companies were expecting uh, when it comes to these contactless payments. Um, so with the pandemic now here, um, what what has changed? Like, What are some of those factors that uh, is impacting this rapid adoption of contactless payments? Uh, I mean, it, I think the most clear thing that's impacting it is just uh, hygiene. <laughs> I think that, you know, when when uh, folks have been going into uh, physical stores, especially things like grocery stores, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people did experiment and did move to uh, online grocery shopping during quarantine, but um, especially in those early days before they had figured that out and when there were still a lot of, it was hard to get appointments and reservations and things, um, you know, people are still going into grocery stores and and uh, yet they, you know, they, you, you get up there, you, you're fine with taking things off the shelves maybe, but then you look at that credit card terminal Ooh. that hundreds of people have touched before you that day. Dirty. And it's just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so I think that, you know, the, uh, the ability to offload that interface onto mm-hmm. our devices where you can just, you know, either use your, your, your thumb or your face to authenticate and you just sort of put your device next to the next to the terminal um that had really the fact that all of that was already in place and that most people even if they didn't use it all the time knew that they had that capability i think that was like an it was an obvious thing that even go walking into the store they might not have been thinking i'm going to use apple pay or google pay or, or whatever to 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 check out but when they get to that terminal it's like oh mm. i can just wave my phone at this thing and i don't have to actually touch it right and um, the one thing that's missing to that experience is like they're still asking me to sign it's like i don't want to sign like have my phone authenticate like take out the signature cuz i'm yeah. not touch it any well the signing thing is actually a merchant by merchant requirement. I, I forget what the current level is for, and it's different for Apple and Google and, and Samsung. They set their own limits. There mm-hmm. is a limit above which you do have to sign, um, but it's pretty high. Uh, and I think that some um, merchants still, for whatever reason, or even for smaller purchases, uh, I definitely know it's over a hundred dollars. So right. you know, most purchases are falling under that. For smaller purchases, it's at the discretion of the merchant. I frankly think it's a little ridiculous. Like when has a, a, no one signs their real signature on those things anyway. When has a scribbled a signature? Ever, like, 
like sorry that's not going to hold up in court like <laughs> actually the the authenticated device is way more secure um so and way more you know traceable and for if if there were problems so you know Frankly, I think it's ridiculous, um, and I think it's well past time and if, for merchants to get over themselves uh, with that. But uh, especially, <laughs> especially now when people don't want to be touching things, right? Uh, no, it's I, time to I, get over it. <laughs> yeah, I I love the hot take. Thank you for that, and I'm I'm on the same page. Um, but some, some some other areas outside of hygiene that we've been seeing is just the general shift from uh, offline to online shopping that just continues to increase. Uh, and these type of payments methods uh, are make a very frictionless checkout experience, especially online when again, you can just pay with your face and poof, it's ordered and it's at your door in you know, in two days, which is fantastic. Relating back to the pandemic for a minute, these companies have also really provided easy ways to receive stimulus checks. So you can sign up for a Venmo account or a cash app account and apply for their debit card as well. And then that allows you to have a way to get a digital payment from the government without actually having to set up a bank account or anything. And it can all be managed directly through your phone, uh, which is pretty, pretty great. Yeah, I think that that was super important. Uh, we we sort of talk um, and have talked before about um, underbanked uh, folks mm-hmm. and how, you know, those are obviously the people that are the most in need of that stimulus check. So, you know, providing easy pathways for them to get it from services they might already be using, I think, obviously, was a, a huge win. Yeah, absolutely. As we start to see this growing adoption of contactless payments, like what are the companies that are in the position to really benefit from this adoption? Apple Pay and Google Pay are in uh, the one of the best positions because they have a very easy to use simple way to pay at mm-hmm. point of sale in brick and mortar retail. Um, and I think that that is the, you know, I, I even though technically it's very easy and possible and probably a decent number of consumers do use multiple payment methods, mm-hmm. when it comes time to pay for something, pay for your groceries at a grocery store, people are not going to be, I think, juggling between Venmo and Apple Pay, let's say. I right. think that they're going to pick one and whichever one they, they think is the easiest, they're going to use that one. Right. Um, when we're talking about online payments, I think it's a little different because there's a little more of an sort of equality um, between the platforms. There's a little less of an advantage to Apple and Google as the platform owner. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think, again, it's sort of like, well, if you use Apple Pay for everything else, wouldn't you just use Apple Pay on the web as well? Um, and I think, you know, there's uh, that that does give them some advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, Venmo and uh, Ca- Cash App or Square Cash, um, you know, have the, the person-to-person advantage, uh, even mm-hmm. though Apple and Google now support that. It was a feature they added later. Um, a lot of folks might not be super aware of that as an option. So I think that high awareness of Venmo and Cash App as a way for to send person-to-person payments make sure that they're going to be in the mix um, and that they have an opportunity to you know, convert consumers to their uh, to their merchant based payment products in the future, right? And you know, the companies that we're talking about, Venmo, Square, Apple, Google, you know, Samsung, um, they aren't traditional banks or even credit card providers, but like they're becoming the face that a consumer sees when they pay. And so, as that starts to be like the first thing we see when we pay, you know, what is going to happen to our traditional banks or even credit card companies? You know, when it, like their it seems like like their place in line and their connection to like to the consumer is starting to be disintermediated. They're starting to kind of have a little bit of a disconnect when you're now paying with Apple Pay, you're not paying with you know an X Y Z credit card. You know, I'm paying with Venmo. I'm not paying with my credit card or my debit card or whatever it might be. Yeah, this is something that we spoke about last year, but the idea that the consumer facing part of 
those financial services is being mm-hmm. handled by a company like, like Apple. Um, but the, the back end is still a traditional bank. They're just uh, the front end. Um, right. So, uh, you know, we know the back end for the, for the Apple card is Goldman Sachs, for example. Um, and they did talk about that publicly. It's not like they're trying to hide the fact. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think Apple wanted to make sure that people knew it was a, a big, serious bank that they'd heard of before. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the the uh, it, there is a little bit of disintermediation there, but I think the question for those financial services providers are: Are these customers that you would have gotten uh, on your own, or are mm-hmm. you expanding your audience? And I think you know, the for Goldman Sachs, the answer was probably that they're you know they did the, the math and. I don't know what the number was, but something like, let's <laughs> say 80% out. of Apple, of Apple card customers are customers that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, they're Goldman Sachs for Goldman Sachs. That makes sense. They're a very specific kind of brand, uh, in the financial services industry, um, for other brands that are more mainstream that, that do try to appeal to everybody. It may make a little bit less sense. Uh, but I do think that, you know, it then, it calls into it raises the question of are you going to compete with these uh these these tech giants um and yep. you know it's not right apple and google are, are very you know sort of forward there but it's also amazon um it's also you know we've seen companies like t-mobile now sells banking services walmart sells banking services really? like they do. Yeah. Huh. So like there's a there's a whole long list of other brands that sell banking services that they themselves might not be the actual financial provider for. They're just the sort mm-hmm. of customer facing side. So I think the question is like for a financial services provider, looking at your brand and your portfolio of products. Like you're going to address X percentage of the market, right? And like that might be the high end, it might be the low end, it might be, you might be trying to address everybody. When you're developing new products or looking mm-hmm. towards acquisitions, you're going to be trying to plug those holes of like, where, where are we not, a, where are we weak with customers? Which right. audiences are we not able to attract? And sometimes that's because you don't have a specific product or a specific service. Sometimes that's literally just brand positioning. Mm-hmm. So, you're going to try to plug those holes and you can either do that by developing new products internally. You can do that by, uh, mergers and acquisitions, mm-hmm. or you can, you know, this is sort of a, a newer option, but it's, you can offload some of that to a, a trusted <laughs> partner, uh, right. like, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, et cetera, to T-Mobile, Walmart, to, um, <laughs> yeah, to go and get those customers, <laughs> <laughs> to go and get those customers for you. And in some ways it is the least risky, right? Um, right. because yes, you are, are sacrificing uh, sort of the direct connection to those customers, but you're also probably putting up less less cash up front. And uh, so, you know, in, it, it's like if you if you weren't going to spend the money, invest the time and money to go after those customers yourself anytime soon, it's probably better to just work with a partner and, and have them get those customers for you. Right. Yeah. No. Totally. And the when you kind of think about the banking services, like, yes, there are banks that are consumer facing, but they always seem more B2B to me. Like they have customers, but like Scott Elcherson is a, (laughs) not really their customer. It is, you know, the massive enterprises that are banking through them on, you know, with billions of dollars of transaction, those are like their big customers. So, you know, if you look at it from like that angle, it does make a lot of sense that these, you know, banks are more B2B 
providers. It makes sense for for large banks to focus on enterprise, like you say, but also high net worth individuals and um, you know families that have that are either currently or projected to be generating large uh, incomes and lar- a lot of revenue. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, whereas for for even for someone like Apple, which is as we must recall the <laughs> largest and most valuable company in the world, um, for Apple, you know, Scott Elchison spending. Uh, Five hundred to a thousand dollars a year on an iPhone actually is valuable to them right, still, uh, right. because the, you know uh, the the even though Apple is an enormous company and very uh, very pr- profitable, uh, they are they do that by selling by having more customers who spend less money um, as opposed to banks, which you know tend to make um, a lot of money from those it, from those high earners mm-hmm. and then spread out the the you know across the the more mainstream consumers. So I, I would say that your average mainstream consumer is more valuable to Apple and Google right. and Amazon than to a big bank. Right. Absolutely. And one of the areas too that I think we should kind of touch on is with a lot of these companies and how we're starting to see transactions happen online and offline is that they're looking to be the infrastructure as well to help buyers and sellers make transactions through e-com marketplaces. We know Square is a uh, POS provider. We know Apple has recently bought uh, MobiWave, which was a Montreal-based startup uh, that had a product that allowed essentially anybody to turn an iOS device into a NFC-equipped POS terminal, so a handheld POS terminal. I think that is just like one more uh, point of access that is going to start to develop is that no matter where you go now, um, in some way, shape, or form, you'll have access to a digital payment checkout method, whether that's, like you said, you know, a QR code, an NFC tag, the hardware is in place to facilitate these transactions, um, big and small. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see what Apple actually launches. I would be a little surprised if they launched a full-on merchant program. Um, I think Mm -hmm. uh, that it's not out of the question, but I I think that it is would be a total. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question um, for them to launch a small business program, but Mm -hmm. I think that it would be something totally new and out of the blue uh, that we hadn't seen before. So, uh, you know, another, as we've been saying, step down the the integration path for financial services. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, Square offers a whole suite of products outside of that core right. um, POS system, which is where they started. They they offer small business lending. They they offer things to manage your um, your like HR and time tracking. Uh, there's uh, all kinds of products that they offer um, mm-hmm. at this point. So I think that uh, it you know th- they will still have a place in the in the ecosystem. Um, but uh, you know yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think if Apple did start, it would be it would be the first real sort of business offering from Apple outside of you know programs for for businesses right. to purchase their devices. So. Uh, it would be a totally new product line for them, but you know, Apple is looking for that services revenue, and as we know, uh, you know, you know, who spends money on services are businesses, <laughs> right? Absolutely, and I, I think that the last thing is to like to touch on as we've been having this conversation, it's been mulling in my mind, is that. Um, a lot of this contactless payment and adoption, you know, it starts with like hygiene. Um, but I think that's going to also get us comfortable with this idea of not needing something tangible uh, to like f- have the security in our finances or our money or whatever it might be. 
I think this is also too, as we start to have, you know, more adoption of contactless payments, we're going to see more and more people be comfortable with essentially having full digital banking services, whether that's through Venmo or Square uh, or like Chime or Current, you know, essentially like these banks that have no physical presence. They're just digital banks. I think that's going to be something that, that we're going to start to see. And essentially, it's going to commoditize a lot of the banking experience when there's no physical space you need to be at. It's all going to come down to, you know, how good are your rates, your interests and your offerings and where we're going to be like, like really competing on like like the core benefits of what a bank provides, you know, from like a return perspective. Uh, yeah, I think the question is from a lot of consumers is like, why do I need a branch for a bank anyway? I think I, I can count the number of times I've been inside a bank branch on one hand in certainly in the past five years, mm-hmm. maybe even in longer yeah. than that. So it's interesting. Um, let's uh, go ahead and uh, wrap up this week's episode. So uh, are there any other brand takeaways that you think that we should be thinking about as we start to see this adoption of contactless payment? payments continue to grow. Um, I think one just to start off here is just to really ramp up mobile wallet education. Uh, you know, it's a lot of consumers, you know, are starting to be more comfortable with mobile payments uh, amid the pandemic. Obviously, we don't want to touch cash or money or credit cards. So I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, to educate your consumers, whether you're a company like Apple or even a credit card company like, you know, Chase or Visa or well, Chase the Bank, Visa or American Express, uh, to educate consumers on how to use these products. Uh, so that way, when it comes time to check out and they start to essentially maybe not pick and choose the card that they're going to use, you as a um, credit card company, for example, have already been put into the default spot on their uh, digital wallet. And we know with defaults, those are hard to change. It's a fantastic place to be. Um, and it puts you in a position for success of just, you know, recurring transactions. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, what we've seen is that getting consumers to use these products once is like the big hurdle, right? Is getting someone to put their credit card into their, you know, their, their Apple pay or their Google pay. Um, even though you don't need to do that at this point, because they do come with their own debit card sort of automatically enabled. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I think from, from a financial services perspective, you know, perspective, getting your card in there and then getting them to use it just one time is the big hurdle. And that mm-hmm. after that, people will use it, uh, you know, sort of as they see fit. I think the other side of that is, um, from, from the merchant side is get is working with these providers to incentivize the, that usage, knowing that, uh, these providers do want their consumers using these, uh, digital contactless payment uh, methods. So mm-hmm. like, I think that the clearest example is, um, with Apple and the Apple card, you can get, uh, there are certain, certain merchants that fall into the 3% cash back category. Um, and that's a really simple deal that Apple just cuts with the merchant. Probably the merchant is paying for that extra 1% bonus um, on top of the, the standard 2% for using Apple pay. Uh, and then you're, you know, incentivizing Apple card, uh, customers to use, to use Apple pay and Apple card at your establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we don't know how much that motivates people, um, but it, it motivates some, some amount of people, uh, to, to do that. So, uh, I think that that it opens up new opportunities. And I think we are going to continue to see new experiments in loyalty on both the financial services side and, and the merchant side. Right. So how digital loyalty programs work, Apple Pay and Google Pay both have digital loyalty cards that can be a- activated at 
uh, at the point of sale. Um, and uh, I think that we're, we haven't seen a huge adoption of that, but I, I think that we will see increased experimentation to try to figure out the best way to incentivize customers to do that. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that there's going to be, you know, sort of evolving merchant opportunities uh, for integration. Fantastic. Well, listeners, that is our show this week. Uh, as always, please send us any questions. You can reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Tippier, T-I-P-P-I-E-R, or Adam, uh, at Adam J. Simon. As a reminder, Apple has announced their fall iPhone event. Uh, it'll be next Tuesday at 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, we're expecting, obviously, new iPhones. Uh, an update on Apple Pay uh, and those financial services as this is the time when they normally provide those briefings. Uh, so check back next week uh, for our analysis and breakdown of the fall iPhone Apple event. So thanks everybody and we'll see you all next week. Bye.